Welcome to Season 8 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? You want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And in our eighth season, we're focused on research and scholarship in our field. Um, We're asking the question, where do leadership educators go for research? This season, we're talking to journal editors. We're talking to people who lead publications for practitioners, leadership scholars, and peer reviewers. In today's episode, we'll dive into the editor roles of a leadership education publication. Editor, Dr. Kathy Guthrie, Associate Professor of Higher Education in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at the Florida State University, and Associate Editor, Dr. V. Chenu, Assistant Professor of Organizational and Community Leadership at the University of Illinois, both from New Directions for Student Leadership will join us today. Um, also, it's special because everybody on the podcast is a Seminole. And so, you know, we like to celebrate that whenever we can. So just going to toss that out there already. Today, they're going to share their insights on their focus, what makes a great NDSL issue, how they pitch issues, what trends they're seeing, kind of all the things that give us some insight into what's going on. So welcome to the show, Kathy. Hello, thank you for having me. You're welcome, and welcome to the show, V. Thanks so much for having me. Can't wait for the conversation. Yeah, we're really looking forward to to this one for sure. And uh, so, Kathy, what is this year? I think this is your third uh, third visit, maybe fourth to the to the show. So we were just kind of joking that you know, kind of like the SNL list of folks that are uh, been hosting, you know, five or more times. You're you're you're, uh, you're leading the club. Maybe it's the, the Steve Martin. I think it's Steve Martin, actually, that has the most, if I remember right. So, I don't know. But... I love hanging out with you all. So <laughs> so it's fun. And be excited to finally get, get you on. And so y'all can definitely go back and, and listen to some of the episodes where Kathy has joined us to learn a little bit about her origin story and uh, how she um, got into to leadership education. But I'd love to get some of that from V, since it's your first time on, just a little bit about how did you get into your teaching role? And then we'd love to share a little bit from that about how you got into this editorial role connected to the journal and then we'll and then we'll kind of backtrack to, to Kathy because I don't think we've heard you talk about how you ended up as an NDSL editor so we don't have that story on any of our episodes Kathy but but V if you wouldn't mind starting us off oh sure absolutely uh so I'm originally <clears throat> from New York but I spent most of my life in Florida uh, I have a bachelor's degree I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from the University of Miami and unlike lots of other people who leave after they graduate I stayed on as an employee for over 10 years uh, I actually started as an administrative assistant in the sister residential college to where I was an RA uh, and that was the 20 20- the 2002-2003 academic year. So this is my 20-year higher ed anniversary. So I'm so pleased to be able to share it with all of you. Um, but yeah, I did an administrative assistant role for a year. And then for 10 years, I was an academic and career advisor in residence. So I was a supplemental academic advisor whose office was on the first floor of a 900-person first-year student housing building. Uh, and in the last four years of that commitment, I was concurrently the university's academic ombudsperson. 
So you could imagine somebody who was an academic advisor, somebody who was an academic grievance officer. I spent a ton of time with faculty. Uh, and so for anybody out there who's listening, if you also spend a lot of time with faculty, inevitably one of them will turn to you and say, you should get a PhD one day. Uh, so I did, right? I can only hear that advice so many times before I decide to follow it. And so I left the University of Miami and joined Florida State University's higher education program. So if anybody knows anything about college football in Florida, going from the University of Miami to Florida State University, one, one does not simply. Uh, and yet I did. Like, I, I'm living proof that, that it can, in fact, be done and you can still lead a happy and successful life and like get good gas mileage and all this other stuff <laughs> that we, we might want to have. So, yeah. I uh, And I think the to answer sort of the second question, of how I got involved with editing. I think that a big part of it, I mean, almost all of it has to do with Kathy and the experience of being at Florida State. You know, I, I for me, one of the most fundamental core skills of being a good editor is knowing how to write well. And a core fundamental skill of knowing how to write well is reading well. And so I don't want to say like, I learned to read at Florida State because certainly I knew how to read before I made it. I, I passed the GRE, right? Like they let me in. <laughs> Um, but I don't think I knew how to read as a scholar or as a leadership scholar or as a leadership education scholar until my time at Florida State. So I, I do appreciate them teaching me to read in that way. And then I don't know how much of the story, you know, Kathy, you want to have already told, but, you know, Kathy and I were teaching together. We were co-teaching a master's course in leadership education, trying to prepare student affairs practitioners for the roles and responsibility of leading and teaching other people how to lead that we knew they were going to have to encounter. And we kept getting frustrated. We couldn't find the material that we wanted to have in order to teach not just the skill set and this knowledge base, but to do it in a way that was related to ide ideas of fairness and equity and justice and you know equal protection. So we so we built it like we built the thing that we didn't have. And it was really, you know, changing the narrative that first book through IAP where I learned how to be an editor of work that wasn't just my own. Right. Like I was used to writing course papers and um, administrative documents, emails, annual reports, assessment and evaluation, um, white papers, but had never really done substantial editing of other people's work before. And it was both you know, exhilarating to be exposed to this wide array of deep thinking that was happening outside of my personal sphere. But it was also terrifying to have somebody else's ideas in my hands and trying to do them honor and justice, knowing that they are experts in a way that I will never be. And yet I am tasked with helping elevate their rhetoric to a place where it can be, you know, used and used effectively. Uh, and so even to this day, that was, I don't know, eight, seven, 10 years ago, Kathy, that we started on that project. We've had, you know, many other projects since then. We continue to work together on NDSL. But for me, uh, it's all one continuous line of academic training, professional experience, scholarly development, and ultimately being in a place where what I try to do is create a platform for other people's really good ideas. Yeah, I love that you you shared all of that. You touched on so many good points, especially the Miami FSU thing, although mm -hmm. I'm told it happens more than we know. Like mm -hmm. my closest friend who I met at FSU taught at Miami for years. And I was like, don't you wear that fur? Don't you wear that <laughs> orange and green? Like, but she, you know, got into it, obviously. 
Yeah. Something that that I love, and in a, in a minute, Kathy, I do want to ask you about your experience. I love that you talked about that elevating the rhetoric of others, because I don't know that that's really come through in some of the conversations that we've had. Um, one of the things I like about this series is we're we're digging deep into research and finding its its community. It is it's more than just publishing, but it's really about how are we having conversations and discussions about what we're seeing and experiencing through evidence-based practice or methods so that we can affirm that this is going to make an impact. This is going to be the knowledge we need. And so that elevating the rhetoric that you just talked about just sticks with me so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I've, I've sat on a couple of uh, PhD students committees now, so it's all come full circle for me, right. From having to ask somebody else to do it, to being on it for other people. And I, and I try as often as I can to demystify for people, the idea that no scholar kind of sits in classes for three years and then goes off into a cabin in a woods with their typewriter, bangs out a 200 page dissertation and then gets a terminal degree, right? Like there's this myth in society that that's what happens, right? That the hermitage style of writing is the and only way to become a qualified scholar in your field. It doesn't work that way. I tell people it takes a village to write a dissertation. It takes a village to write a journal article. It takes a, a, a village to edit an NDSL uh, volume or issue. Like it, nobody does does any of this work alone, but somehow this myth of the lone wolf genius sort of persists in our society. Um, so I appreciate, Lauren, your comments about community because I think community plays a role in idea formation, idea articulation, editing, uh, uh, public description and feedback, critical inquiry and design. Like nobody who does it, I have not met anybody who has been able to do this successfully completely by themselves on an island isolated somewhere so if anyone out there is thinking about writing editing advanced degree work and you think that you have to do it by yourself nobody does it by yourself the one of the greatest joys about this experience too is that i, di I didn't even know who my village was until i showed up for it right like the more I put myself out there and the more I talk about the work I want to do, other people, I see their, I literally see their ears perk up and they say, oh, that's something I'm interested in. Or that's something I already do. Or that's something I want to be able to do one day. So for, for to disavow people of the fear that this is a, a isolationist uh, opportunity. No, 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 no. None of us do. I wouldn't be where I am without the help of people like Kathy. Kathy wouldn't be where she is without people that helped her. Many of us are the recipients of benefits from people who we will never meet. And yet, this is how it's always been. And I would argue how it should be. Oh, I'm motivated. I'm inspired. <laughs> Great. Take over the show. <laughs> I got enough. I got enough shows, but I'm happy to be here with you all today. <laughs> so in, in searching that, Kathy, I saw you nodding as, as V was sharing. Can you share a little bit about your, your journey in this NDSL process? Yes. Well, as um, most people know, Susan Comavez was really the founding editor of this. And she asked me to be a part of it back in 2013. And there's a beautiful story about how she, I just um, had my, I have a nine-year-old daughter. And so this was that long ago. Susan actually reached out and was like, Kathy, I know that you just had, you know, a baby, but when can we meet? She was actually my first meeting after I gave birth outside of the house, right? And I remember still feeling a little off and I went and we met and had lunch together. And I sat there and I told her, I said, this is my first meeting. So if I'm a little off, I apologize. And she said, oh my goodness. Well, I have something to ask you. And that was actually when she asked me to be the um, associate editor for NDSL. And I remember like saying, oh, I'm so emotional because you know I had all the hormones and everything, but it was an amazing conversation about 
exactly what we were talking about, what V was saying about community is one of the things that we wanted to do with NDSL because it was a new journal. It was, you know, in the Wiley New Direction series, but it was a new for, you know, focused on student leadership was to build a community around that really to extend and be inclusive to say, how are we building this, um, <laughs> not even, not only community, but community of practice to be able to share, share the work. And so we, I feel do some things a little different than other journals are able to because of just the format of NDSL. But some of my favorite times at conferences is when we have happy hours, we call them NDSL gatherings. So all article authors, editors, we try to get people together to really do have this community um, where we can touch base. And we'll do that at ILA, International Leadership Association, or the higher ed focused conferences like NASP and ACPA. And it'll just be, hey, meet at this gathering spot and have conversation. And so I think that is one of those ways that that community can really um, expand and bring in diverse voices into the conversation that is so desperately needed. So I love um, these, you know, how he said, elevate voices. I always talk about amplification. How as an editor, are we able to amplify other voices? And so if it's just us putting kind of that together, it's just, you know, helping that. But I think one of the beautiful things that I love about editing is that I get to learn I learn from experts as I'm reading this and I can help with like, Ooh, develop this a little bit more. I have questions about this. So give me more on that. Like, I want to know more. (laughs) And that is what has been so beautiful is that it's this, you know, exchange, but it's this learning place. And it's also that um, amplification of voices that is so needed. So we're not hearing the same people over and over again. Right. So, but yeah, so I was able to learn with Susan for so many years. And when Susan was like, okay, it's time for me now to really retire after 10 years of being retired from Maryland. <laughs> um, it was like, well, V and I already had this established relationship and collaboration. And I think we're, um, I love working with V in, a, in this way of that we don't always agree. It's not that we're one voice. It's actually quite opposite. And it's like, how are we doing this collectively to move it forward? right? How are we building the community and how are we, "Mm, I'm not so sure about that. Or what about this way of saying it? Or, and it's a great discourse that can then be in such a beautiful way to enhance um, voices. It's modeling that psychological safety that we teach about all of the time in a way that's, that's productive and respectful. Yes. And it's like, okay, I'll say that V I'm not going to edit myself. I need to talk through this and I'm just going to say it. And I know you won't judge me. Right. Like I know that you're going to, and vice versa. It's that exactly that safe space where it's like, this is what what's on my heart and mind, but I'm not sure exactly how to say this. Right. Yeah. Dan and I have the same conversations. Like we have, we have seen COVID together. We have seen political tension and race, and we've been able to have those conversations in a way where we, we can say we trust each other and we just don't agree but we're still respectful and we're able to work together and, you know, and, and it's, it's what I think you want in a true partnership um, as you're trying to create a community um, amongst your peers. So, yeah. And and that's one of the things that's just impressed us 
two over the last decade, or I guess going back to like 2016, when the first issue of In the SL came out and the, the community that you and Susan and and now uh, I'm sure V will, will take that baton as well. And, and that that community that y'all have created, it was just been incredible. You know, you mentioned the gatherings at the at the conferences and and also the any all the contributing authors. I mean, it really it is kind of like, I don't know, a side community of practice within our larger community of practice of folks that we've worked together, we've been in the trenches together, you know, I mean, doing whether you've been a contributing author or you've been, you know, an editor or co-editor, you know, you've you've gone through those, <laughs> you've gone through the the trials and the tribulations of of that process. And you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, when when folks have all been in boot camp together or something like that. I mean, everybody's like, yep, been there, know that, you know, I've experienced that. And then we can come together around that. And we also share, you know, the love and passion for the field. And and I will say too that that y'all have done a great job of, like you said, elevating or activating, empowering uh voices, amplifying voices from oftentimes there's contributing authors that are, you know, like, oh, I I don't know who some of these folks are, and that's a good thing, right? You know, and and really reaching out outside of our networks and and asking people, say, you know, uh, I've got an idea for you know this chapter or what have you, and you know, do you know anybody that we hasn't been heard from? You know, maybe someone who's who hasn't written ever before. You know, folks that are more in a practitioner focused role or something like that, or working in K through twelve, or we even have folks from like four H and extension, and you know, and so it it really does help paint uh, a brighter picture, maybe tell a more detailed story. Um, and so I really appreciated that, both being an author and an editor, as also uh, as a reader as well. And so you know, thinking about the our podcast here, so we've had the editors of the last nine NDSL issues on our podcast, which is crazy to us to think that going back to the summer of 2021, where we entered into a formal partnership with y'all, because we we had had some folks on. And then I think we got an email from Susan that had said, you know, y'all are doing this anyway. Why don't we just kind of like etch this in stone and just say, yeah, you know, anytime there's a new issue that's out, let's, let's have the editorial team of each individual issue to chat a little bit about their process and, and get, get the news out, because it is such an important publication in our field. And then I think we we had had one way back in 2020, I think pre-pandemic, Carrie and I chatted a little bit about that issue that we had co-edited on becoming and being a leadership educator. And so it's been great to hear the stories of the process of how do they ideate the issue chapters? Like what was the process like inviting contributing authors, et cetera. But I would love to hear from you all a little bit about what's your perspective working with these special issue editor teams, right? It's been a little one-sided um, on the podcast thus far. They've all said great things, but uh, you know, it's, it it is it is interesting to be working with with them and supporting them and mentoring them through that process. Because you know, kind of like V shared, when you edit that first that first book or that first journal, I mean, these are I, I mean, I remember doing that experience with Journal of Leadership Studies, fresh on the tenure track, and I was terrified. But the folks I was working with could have been better. Um, Tony Middlebrooks was the special symposium editor over at Journal for Leadership Studies for the longest time and was just a great mentor in that process. And I'm so thankful for that. And I th- and I know, Kathy, you had done that um, at one point, I think with Brian Davenport with a special symposium there. And so um, I don't know, maybe if you brought some of that expertise over to, I, I guess I never made that connection before, but you know, thinking about that, supporting that development of each issue theme, again, helping them identify contributing authors. So I guess you know, in NV too, I know this is like a, the longest question of all time, but multi points and ABCs, Fs and, and Ls. But, you know, so V, you talked a little bit about some, some of the skills that you brought into this role. Like for both of you, like what, what other like experience did you need? How did you acquire that? And kind of the whole, that whole shebang, again, for the longest question ever asked on a podcast. <laughs> uh, so just to clarify, Dan, uh, is the question 
the the skill yes, the skills yes. associated <laughs> yeah, the question is yes right yeah the skills associated with being so i, I guess it I'll, I'll react to some of your comments and hope that my comments answer the question um one of the things i think about in terms of the stories that leadership educators get to tell right whether that's through ndsl or any of the other outlets routinely i've had the experience where people will tell me a great story about their work and I'll ask them things like, well, have you put this in the public sphere anywhere? Have you tried to share this more broadly than the conversation that you might have with one or two other people? And they'll say, well, no, it's not a big deal. And I think that logic comes from people thinking that they're not a big deal. Therefore, the work that they do isn't a big deal and not worth sharing. And I take every opportunity I can to disrupt that logic because it's, to me, it's so blatantly false, right? Like there are these really wonderful stories everywhere that if more of us told in a broader fashion, our whole field gets elevated by that, right? By hearing those stories, by learning those lessons, by having the knowledge and information shared more broadly and widely. So I would think anybody who wants to share their story and you think, uh, it's not a big deal. I want to be the person to say that you're wrong. <laughs> it is actually a big deal. And maybe it's not your place to determine if your story is a big deal or not. Maybe it's the people who need to hear it who get to determine whether it's a big deal or not. And if I am impressed by the quality of what that story is, I have to believe it will have impact on other people, the way they make decisions, the way they approach their work, the way they interact with students or colleagues or supervisors, the way they coach, the way they advise, the way they mentor, the way they make decisions in their families and in their private lives. All of these stories matter, right? And as soon as somebody feels like their story doesn't matter, something for me has gone wrong. Like something has gone awry somewhere. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have that taking place. You all, so that's not necessarily a skill, right? For me, that's more of like a philosophical orientation of storytelling and narrative and, and some of those kinds of things. Uh, I do think uh, core skills that I try to bring to the table come directly from my counseling training in a lot of ways, right? So I learned to very specifically listen to stories that help me identify patterns, that help me identify, uh, uh, John Dugan talks about the story most often told, I'm looking for the story that you're telling me, but not telling me. Uh, and, I, and I think that one of the values I bring to any project is reflecting that back to the person who's telling me the story in a way that opens them up to keep telling it as opposed to feeling seen in an undesirable way. As soon as I can connect with somebody and I say something like, well, it sounds to me like you've made great sacrifices, or it sounds to me like you've been laboring under maybe unfair, unproductive conditions. It sounds to me like you've been taking on a lot of emotional labor that's going unrecognized. People are more willing to talk to me <laughs> and they're more willing to maybe share that because they recognize that they are not the only person being treated that way. And, you know, lots of people don't like uh, Star Wars Episode Nine, but one of the great lessons from that film is oppressive forces win when they make us feel like we fight alone. None of us are really alone, but we can certainly play a role in our own isolation. The, the factors and the influences under which we work, they're isolating enough. Let's not do that to ourselves, too. I'm hoping that some of this commentary is getting to what you wanted, Dan. <laughs> It is. I mean, I think how you work one-on-one -on -one or kind of in small groups with these folks is interesting because I think that, and that's something that, that and it's interesting to hear you tell this story because I, I I think there are some similarities, but too, but I think obviously there's individually, it's 
the approach is somewhat different with with Kathy and Susan, but in in your own ways, you all create this very welcoming and an inclusive process that I think issue editors and contributing authors want to be a part of the of telling these stories, which I've always really, really appreciated and admired about NDSL. And I guess yes, and what else maybe from from UV or Kathy, you know, some of these uh, experiences working with issue editor teams, uh, supporting their development, identifying contributing authors, like what have you learned from those processes and what do you think has helped you to be successful in that part of editing and, and putting out NDSL? For me, it's always, who are we missing? Who are we missing from the conversation? And we know every single issue we're missing people. I mean, that's, and it's how are we making sure we're inviting and including and expanding all of all of that. Um, and so for me, I'm always learning or trying to learn where are the where are other communities of practices or maybe pockets within the larger community practice of leadership education that I'm just not connected with or aware of because I know they're there and it's not I want to be aware and I want to learn from them. And so for me, it's how are we. Um, like, I want to know the friend of the friend of the friend. <laughs> like, I want that connection to that. And I say that because that really is about the contributing authors, because when an issue editor or co-editor team has a proposal and brings it to us, I'll be like, oh, well, have you thought about this person? Or I think this person might have a doc student they're working with, but you need to do a little bit of digging because I don't know. Right. And so it's trying to build upon kind of if you've heard of something or know of someone that could contribute and to tell their story. Um, I will tell you a lot of how I learned was just observing Susan. Susan has a really incredible way of making connections that literally I would read through her, like her commentary or her edits and be like, oh, oh, that is so good. Right. And how she made those connections. And I am finding, I mean, I learned and I continue to learn from that, that I'm starting to see how I can make those connections. Not the exact same ones that Susan would perhaps, but her process of doing that. And that's exactly what mentors are, right? Like to kind of show you the way and to guide you. And so I would tell her all the time, I just appreciate being in this space with you so I can learn. Right. I mean, and so I feel that a lot of what I was able to learn from kind of being under her wing for so long that it felt good to be able to really um, understand kind of connections. And she just knows so much about what is happening in the field that she can make the connections broadly. And so I, there'll be times where an issue will come and it's a very specific topic. And I'm like, I really don't know a lot about this. Right. So now how do I educate myself, even though the issue editors are the experts and always going to those issue editors and saying, you're the expert of this. Like, um, for instance, one's coming up with uh, Ryan Satterwhite and his team on sustainability. That is not my core area, but I've been not only learning from the articles that are in that issue, but then I've been picking up other things just to try to do a quick read just so I better understand so that I can give the best feedback in a way saying, Ooh, I'm okay. I don't understand this. So for a reader that might not understand sustainability, what else can you explain to help kind of bring them in? Right. So that they can digest what you're, what you're offering. Um, but I would say, you know, each editor team or issue editor or co-editor, however you want to, you know, call that they're all, it's very different because for me, it's based on the relationships right? The relationships that you build with the editors from the proposal stage to, because there are several, you know, it takes about two years for 
an NDSL issue to come out from idea formation to proposal development to the first draft to the final draft to then it getting submitted to a publication, right? So it is it is a journey and it's about a two-year relationship. And so really, you know, that I think is really what's more important for me is how, you know, I'm learning every day and how do I want those to give me feedback? I'm definitely going to try to give that in return because I do say feedback is love and my new V is smiling big, but I do believe this to my core that when you get feedback or when you give feedback, it's, it should be in a space of love. And I know that's not always the case. I get that, <laughs> right? Especially we've all had reviewer two or reviewer three, right? Within this, but it, it's, how are we doing that in, in that way so that people can digest it and be like, oh, you know, that's a good point, right? Like let's, how are we moving on? Or, oh, I don't agree with that. And this is why, you know, it feels like this like balance between curiosity and true collaboration. Like you want to respect the folks and their backgrounds and that they are the experts in this, but also you're trying to get that curiosity, get if like, if you're curious about it and you go down that path, how can you give them that feedback and say like, let's make this easier for folks that they don't have to go looking. So it's not necessarily about they don't know, but it's like, you know, you're such an expert. How can we reframe this in a way that shows your expertise or your your extensive background, but doesn't scare people off, you know, because because I mean, I'll be the first person to tell you, like some of those journals, especially if you're you go to the library and get the print ones, you know, they can be a little off putting. They're not as friendly as like scrolling your phone or, or looking at it, uh, downloading a PDF. Right. But it's, it's that balance of collaboration and curiosity that, that I feel like is that lead role. Um, especially as you're trying to maintain consistency across all of the issues, which is also another important, because every time you're getting a new team, if you're working for two years, it sounds like you're working with multiple teams all of the time. Like, you know, can you talk a little bit more about that process for both of y'all? Yeah, just picking up on some of Kathy's earlier comments in response to that question, I, I think of every issue as having a personality, right? And I think that every issue should have a personality because the people and the ideas that inform it are fundamentally different from the people and the ideas that form any other issue in, in the in the series. At the same time, Kathy and I are trying to walk this balance of, uh, is the information accessible? Is it understandable, right? Is it conveyed in a way that I think, as you just pointed out, invites people in as opposed to pushing them out because it may make them feel like, well, if you're not a content expert at at least the, this level of authorship, then you don't belong as part of the conversation, right? And for the most part, I think the people who we select or self-select into this process do so with that mindset and orientation of, I want to teach people, I want them to understand and at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is create a usable product, right? Like it's not enough for people to show off the great and wonderful things they know unless it's going to do something in the world. And I think that for many, for, for at least my processes, simply, I, I often ask the question, how does this information, whether it's a sentence in a paragraph or an entire document, help me be better, faster, more impactful, more efficient? How am I going to be different? after having ingested this information at the end as I as, as compared to how I was at the beginning. And I think that mentality and that philosophy is what allows us to create a product that is consistently usable, but is still kind of idiosyncratic in the way that it happens. 
knowing that there are very few people who read every single NDSL from cover to cover in order, right? We we do that. <laughs> and we might be the only ones who do, minus a few other people, like like yourselves, because you spend so much time with, with our authors as well. But to not only strike the balance of, is it written at a high level, but also accessible? Is it sufficiently wide at the same time deep? And it's and, and we don't always get it right. I'm going to say that there is no perfect metric for whether or not it's not it's not formulaic. It's not you know rubric driven. Um, we do kind of use our own instincts and the people around us who also read alongside with us, the editors, the the graduate assistants who help us, the the uh, the authors, and the goal I think between all of that human labor applied simultaneously is that we end up with a product or a series of products that are closer to that mark than they are, say, your typical uh, journal that may not approach uh, editing or uh, nurturing of authorship and editorship teams in the same way. Not to say that they're bad or wrong, but everybody's got their lane and we're trying to stay yeah. in ours. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like you it should be like a person, like the journal is your friend. I know it's kind of cheesy, but it's the truth, right? Like you say, it's got a personality. It's this living thing. It's not always perfect. And if you see it in that way as something that is kind of... I hate to humanize in uh, what is it, inanimate objects, but almost like if you see it in that fashion, then there's more of a willingness to continue with it, regardless of what you're getting. Like I think about with NDSL, like what excites me is like, it's not necessarily the topic, but just that it's a new topic and it's going to be something that's relevant. And it's going to be something that I may not know about and I'll get to learn a little bit more. There are other ones that I'm excited about because they are right up my alley. They're very much centered on what I'm interested in learning. And so regardless of if I'm going to read one article or the first, the intro section or the whole thing, I know that there are certain things I'm going to get out of every single issue, um, kind of regardless of the topic because of the leadership. So I think it's a, an awesome experience. Yeah. I do want Kathy to respond too, but just as, as you're, um, uh, reflecting Lauren, it made me think about how we face the same kinds of pressures as anyone else who who creates serialized content, right? So anybody, a filmmaker who makes various films, a TV producer that makes episodes of a TV show, uh, a vocalist who releases a series of albums, podcast hosts who try to make series and episodes of podcasts. It is this balance of wanting to be maximally distinct in each thing that you do, but not to have everything so wildly different that each one caters to a completely different audience of people than the one that might have come before it or after it. But Kathy, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on some of these ideas too. Oh, no, I was just going to say about the personality of each issue that goes back to that storytelling, that amplification of voices. And really, that's the goal, right? That it does um come out in that diverse way that it's not, oh, just the series editors are, you know, making these changes, but that the voice comes out. And so just another way that was like, oh, good. I'm glad that people are seeing that because that's the intent of it, right? So that it is um, kind of yeah. well, <laughs> dynamic. I love it because I my, when you said that, I thought stories stick with people. And one of the best ways is we're learning, like we're pushing beyond like diversity is numbers. We're looking at inclusion is listening to other people's stories. So V, where you said kind of like, it's not your job to judge like whether your story needs to be told, like it may be kind of my job. I'm like, yeah, like let's put some of that out there because you know, you never know when that story is going to resonate with someone. And the only way you do know is, is if you actually put it out there and have people talking about it. But if you're sensitive 
nurturing yourself before you're even getting there. Uh, it's like you're you're robbing the world of that opportunity. And 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 so the more we get folks that are encouraging the storytelling piece um, to build community and relationships and and get the stories that stick out there, um, I feel like the the better we'll be able to address some of the issues that we're seeing today for sure. Well, and I do think that the beauty of all New Direction series with Wiley, but especially New Directions for Student Leadership is that it's based in scholarship, right? So the foundation is scholarship to have that strong sense, but then that's when the storytelling comes as these are examples. This is how it's put into practice so that it can really resonate not only with scholars, but with practitioners or however people you know, identify, I'll say that like on this, you know, scholar, practitioner, scholar, someone was like, am I a prac scholar or a scholar prac? I mean, there are all these words of combining and, but thinking about like it, the scholarship and the research does come and set that foundation, but then the storytelling is allowed to kind of organically emerge through this. And I think that that is what is so beautiful and that it does create that voice, um, but then also allows us to keep up on the scholarship of what's going on um, and what's happening in that, in that realm too. Yeah. Or, you know, or I guess, you know, said another way, Hey, y'all doing some cool stuff. Let's make sure that people know that you're doing cool stuff. Right. You know? <laughs> and so, I mean, and Lauren and I take that approach too on the on the podcast, and I love how y'all have been able to to curate that and really amplify voices. And and you know, too, one of the things I want to point out that um, V, you mentioned how, and I agree. You know, NDSL is very very practitioner forward focused. Um, and from my experience, it's such a joy to write in because as contributing authors, you really get to take the angle of like utility and pragmatism. I always think if I'm lucky enough to be invited to to write or co-write a chapter, well, what would make a reader use this? as a resource. Like, do I want tables with examples of topics or approaches being discussed that they can apply in their own context? And I also use uh, NDSL in the, a course I teach, a graduate course, probably similar to, which I know is similar to the one that you and Kathy co-taught because I uh, borrowed some things from Kathy's syllabus, um, a graduate course uh, on leadership education. And that allows grad students to really take a deep dive into, at least with this particular assignment, um, an area of choice covered by an issue and then serve as like a discussion in an online forum. So I'm curious for y'all, like what are some stories or instances that you've heard from others about how NDSL has been used in the classroom or maybe ways that you've used it yourselves? So NDSL, yes, I do. I have heard several ways that it's been used. So not only in coursework, like and Dan, you should talk a little bit more about because I just learned about this recently and how that shows up in your class. But I am hearing more and more how issues, depending on topic area, are being used in specific courses. So there is an NDSL that's focused on gender and leadership that Dan Tillipa and Paige Haber Curran did a few years back. But that is a course kind of in an undergraduate leadership course that's focused in gender and leadership. And so with that, I think it's being used more in content related. Um, the culturally relevant leadership learning one is being used in certain courses across the country that I know of. And so I do hear about how that is being used as core kind of literature. But I think Dan, how you are using it is really interesting in your graduate course. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I can be brief. Um, you know, it, it, it's used to supplement some things that are not covered in our primary textbooks, which are, you know, the, the book that you and I co-wrote, Kathy, the role of leadership educators, transforming learning. And then we use DFINK's uh, creating significant learning experiences. But some of the specific issues that I include, because I know that they're going to kind of 
fill out the rest of the invisible architecture of what I hope that they get in this scaffolded structure that we call a, a class. <laughs> but, you know, like the, the issue on like how different academic disciplines approach leadership from from 2020, uh, centering dialogue from 2019, the leadership learning through the lens of social class, ones from 21. And then some of the earlier ones that are really important from 16 and 17, the, the leader developmental readiness. Um, and how like sequencing comes into play and then the competency-based approach from 2017. I think Corey Seemuller might've been the lead editor on that, but it really does help to give them some other perspectives that aren't coming just from, from, from those two primary texts. And it really helps them to kind of enter and be a part of the conversation that our community of practice is having and uh, really expose them to a really diverse pool of, of authors. And I'm excited about some of the issues that are coming up. I'm so- that I think that some new topics that we haven't even scratched upon in the community of practice as a whole, right? So um, the next one that will be out is actually on the SALT model, which is the social action leadership and transformation model. That should be coming out any day now. Um, we also have one that's in the pipeline about leadership identity. So really looking, and that's going to be um, edited by Julie Owen, really looking at what is the literature, what is, how is this showing up in, in multiple contexts? Then um, the sustainability topic area that I had mentioned with um, Ryan Satterwhite and his colleagues, Kate Sheridan and Whitney Miller. And then another one that I'm excited about is uh, Melissa Rocco and Darren Pierre are co-editing about applying models and theories in leadership education. So we have all these great models and theories in leadership, but it's kind of like the, so what, how is it, how are they being applied in practice? And so again, based in, and really the foundation and scholarship, but then how is it in practice. And so, um, and we have some other ones, like I said, it's a two-year process. So we've, and NDSL has four a year. So we have multiple (laughs) in the pipeline at once. And so when you had mentioned that earlier, asked that earlier about, you have several teams that you're working with. We do, right. We're at least working with seven to eight at all times. And there are, you know, gaps in there, of course, (laughs) right. Like you, work on a proposal and then they have deadlines that then they'll get us like their first draft and, and so forth. But it's, so it's, it's a cycle and it's, I, I think of it as beautifully choreographed, right? Like how you're seeing this ebb and flow, but being able to work with such brilliant individuals um, has really been just exciting and incredible and full of learning for me um, to do. So, but that I love the topic area, like you had said, and that there are some really important ones um, coming up as well. V, any last thoughts before we get out of here? Uh, just one, a couple of things I wanted to mention since we were talking about the usability of the series and sort of how it how it can be uh, appropriately strategically leveraged. Um, I certainly see the value of bringing into classroom spaces. I wanted to mention two other things. Number one, I'm meeting with a student tomorrow morning before a class. Uh, she's an undergraduate, one of my classes. She's a senior. And in, in, she has to, as part of her membership in the senior program or the honors program, uh, has to pitch a prospective research agenda for herself. And I have subtly i think implicitly convinced her to dedicate her life to leadership and so she messaged me earlier the earlier in the week saying you know i want to do my my senior research agenda proposal on leadership research can you what what's happening in leadership research these days that i could easily find some literature on so we're going to meet tomorrow morning and i'm going to show her the new direction for student leadership series so here are all of these primers uh, that are really springboards to 
to a full research agenda. And so I don't necessarily see that as like an in-classroom experience, although it is one of my students. I'm doing this as like my role as an advisor and mentor to her. So I think NDSL has utility outside of you know traditional pedagogical approaches. And in about a month or so, I'm going to go visit another campus where I'm talking to their engineering faculty about their role as leadership educators and lo and behold, there's an NDSL uh, issue about uh, engineering leadership as well as graduate preparation and leadership. And so I'm going to try to marry some of that information working with adults, right? The adult population, the paid adults at the academy as well. So sometimes we might think of NDSL is really only useful for doctoral students, or maybe it's only really useful for graduate students. Maybe it's sometimes useful in undergraduate classes, but actually in advising and career preparation for undergraduate students, graduates, and even people who are in the academy, this, you know, this resource is usable at all levels, should you be willing to exercise the, the flexibility and creativity and how you use it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not just for classrooms anymore. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that you shared that. That's, that's exciting. It made me think, so we had um, the NDSL co-issue, co-editors on to talk to us about engineering as well. So you have all these resources that you can share. So not just like, can, like, so you're not just going to go talk to them. You can say, and when I leave, here's some more digging that you can do on your own. So it's nothing like leaving those deliverable, I don't call them deliverables, but nothing like leaving those resources with folks so they can continue the learning. Um, well, we have taken up a lot of your time today and we love hanging out with you, but we are also a appreciative of not just coming and talking about your work, but also the, your contributions towards the leadership education community. Um, we want to wish you the best of luck teaching and traveling and speaking and, and as well as with your own research and want to both invite you both back again at some point in the future. Um, we love having you here. Thank y'all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.